Well, good morning, Westmount. It's great for us to be with you today. Um, this is a really neat uh, opportunity to be back with you here at Westmount. Um, a lot of you probably don't know who we are, but um, I, I, this is a really dear place to us. Valerie and I were married in 2001, and from that point on, for about eight years, um, Westmount was our home. And so this is this, I mean, that's years ago now, but for us, this place is really dear, and there's some really dear people to us here, and uh, it's just a joy for us to be with you. And uh, we just want to thank you as well for your support of us, and um, got to meet some of you about six years ago we were here, and we've been gone. If you think, why is this place so dear to you if you never show up? Well, we've been... Uh, <laughs> We've been over in the Philippines for an extended time, so it was four and a half years we were gone, thus not being here. But um, it's really uh, neat for us to be here today, and we just want to thank you for your support financially and prayers, and uh, later on we'll be sharing a little bit about what the Lord has us doing over in the Philippines uh, after lunch. But um, for now, we're going to open God's Word and to see... Uh, what his message is for us this morning. And, um, you know, everything that we've done already this morning has led to this uh, point and it's meshed in perfectly. And so it's really exciting to see um, how that's worked out as well. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 4. And I know Jason um, encouraged you all to read this passage um, before arriving today, and maybe you have, maybe you haven't. If you haven't, we'll read it together. But uh, it's a, um, we're going to see what this text has to teach us today. And the really neat thing about opening God's Word is sometimes you're surprised at where it takes you. And when you let the text um, drive um, what God is saying, then... You go with it, right? And uh, there was something in this passage that attracted me and I think is really appropriate to our time. And then, lo and behold, there was other things in there that I was not expecting, but I think there's a real message for us. I don't know if you've um, had that experience. You wake up in the middle of the night and it's pitch black and you're, you you don't know where you are. Sometimes we sleep in a lot of different beds. It seems that's part of being a missionary. And you, get, you wake up and you're like, I'm not really, you know, everything's disoriented. It's completely dark. And then you, you spot a little light, you know, maybe it's a, you know, an LED something on something. And all of a sudden everything, okay, you thought the door was over here and you wake up and, oh, that little point of reference all of a sudden puts everything into perspective, you know, I thought the door was over there, that light's there, that means the door's here, and you get up and you walk in the right direction. Have you ever had that experience? Um, it's, it's amazing how that little point of reference can, can change everything. And I don't know about you, but as you watch the world the way it is going, we can often feel like we're in the dark, right? And things are out of control, and maybe things are disoriented. And then we have the Word of God, that is like that point of light. And all of a sudden, you get back into that and you know, you're reading the news, watching the news, whatever it is that is confusing you and starting to put doubts in your mind, 
and you come back to the Word of God, and all of a sudden, whoosh, everything is back. Oh, right. And we look up instead of looking into the, the murk of the darkness around, and we have that point of reference. And that's what God's Word does to you. And hopefully, this morning, as we look at this story, you know, that's what church should be. Sunday morning should be like that as well. The Word of God, we have that every day, right? We have that to align ourselves and to point ourselves to look up instead of looking into all the crazy, crazy that's around. And I don't know if about you, but um, I'm now, I would consider myself middle-aged. I'm almost as old as Bill. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm middle-aged. I've seen, I've seen a lot of things. And you're saying, well, you're just a young punk there. But, um, and I know you've seen more, and that means probably you, there's even more that confuses you about where you know how you thought your life was going to go and how you thought the world was going. And now here we are, and it's the rapid changes and the, the way that the moral fabric of our, our culture and world is going. Sometimes that can start to make you feel like, well, is God still on the throne? Does he still have that authority? We know it from the Bible, but I'm not seeing that. Um, and sometimes that can, you, you might wonder, has God lost the plot. Well, we're going to look at a passage today that's going to put that perspective back in, hopefully, that you'll see and put God back in the right spot. Well, this story um, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, what happens right before this is a, a favorite chapter of Sunday school teachers all over the world, and that's the story of little Samuel. And we all know that story, right? Uh, you grew up in Sunday school, you probably heard the story of Samuel. Samuel's sleeping in the temple, and he hears a voice, Samuel, Samuel, and he doesn't know what it is, so he goes to talk to the priest, Eli, and Eli says, wasn't me calling you, go back to sleep. You know, you, you know that story? Anybody know that story? Yeah, okay. So we all know that story really well. That's something that we grow up with. Um, finally, Eli's Eli is kind of known as a man who is not very spiritually sensitive. He's supposed to be the high priest, and yet he seems to be out of tune with God. We'll see why here today. But Eli finally clues in, oh, maybe God is talking to this little boy. And so he says, next time God speaks, or you hear this voice, Samuel, Samuel, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And that's what happens. So you probably know that story. A little pop quiz, okay? Finally, God, Samuel listens and God says this, and then God speaks to Samuel. Uh, what did he say to Samuel? Well, yeah, I, I'll, I'll tell you because that's embarrassing to have to ask your questions. But um, he, the, the whole point of that story, I mean, there's a great lesson in there. That's a great uh, Sunday school lesson. Listen to God. That's great. And I'm not minimizing that lesson. But what the message was, was a, a really serious message for a little boy. Um, my little guy is eight, and I can just imagine Samuel probably about that age. We don't know exactly. But here he is, and he gets this message from God, and it is a message of judgment on Eli, the high priest, and his family. That's the whole context of this story that we're going to look at. Eli's family and his sons especially are wicked people. They're supposed to be the spiritual leaders for their um, nation, the, the nation of Israel. And here 
they have lost um, connection with God completely. And God gives this message to Samuel, little lad Samuel, to tell Eli that his family is going to be judged by God. God has it out for them. This is the message. Can you imagine a little, you younger ones here, can you imagine having to take that message to your boss? You know, uh, God's got it out for you. I mean, this is, that's the situation he finds. Well, so, well, he doesn't want to tell Eli that message. So Eli has to, you know, coerce him and say, come on, it's okay, you can tell me. And here he lays it out to him. Well, that's, that's the story we have, or that's what the context of what's going on here. But we're going to read that. Um, we're going to read why, why does God have it out for Eli and his family. Let's, look, let's flip back to chapter 2 to get a little context here. Um, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. How's that commentary on their lives? Okay, that's starting off, this is why. They did not know the Lord. This is the priests of Israel, okay? Eli's sons were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priests with the people, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. That's where the tabernacle was at that time. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. If we go down to verse 22, it says, Eli, their father, was very old and heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? Okay, this is the priests, okay? As uh, leaders go, so, do, so goes the nation. And here, these are the people who are leading them. Obviously, this is not what God's design for the nation. And we come down to verse 25 of chapter 2. It says, if um, Eli is talking to them, and at the end of verse 25, it says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. So, as we get into this story, we need to keep that in the back of mind. The Lord is fed up with the way that these men are leading their people, and he has it out for them. He's prophesied that they are going to to die, and he desires to put them to death, or it's his will that they will die. Um, Their sin is grievous before the Lord. They are supposed to be the example, and they are... They despise what they're doing. They're just going through the motions, seeing what things they can get out of it. This is their heart. Verse 31 says, Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Verse 34, This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. This is the prophecy that is given. This is God's um, intention for them. 
the whole book of First Samuel has got some contrast in it. If we were to study the whole book, you'd see that it has kind of the... It's coming out of the period of the judges where man, every man did that which was right in his own eye. And then God sets up this um, young boy, Samuel, becomes the leader. Um, he's the leader of nation for uh, quite a period of time. And he is set in contrast to that. Judges, every man does what is what, what, that which is right in his own eyes. Samuel is, grows in favor with God and man. He's trying to please God, trying to lead the nation properly. Um, then we have man starts to, the Israelites say, we want a king. And so God, uh, or they ask for a king, and God gives them Saul. And Saul is considered their choice. He's tall, handsome, strong, um, a man's man. And this is the first king of Israel. And, but his heart is far from God. And so David is raised up. And by the time we get to the end of 1 Samuel, David is established as the king of the nation. And so there's a contrast being made. God is setting us all up, and he's setting the people of Israel up to show there's a man's way and there's God's way. And when we come to the end of the book, when we, because we have to realize that this book is, is written to us today, there's lessons for us, but also... It was read, the Israelites read this originally, right? And what did it mean to them? They were seeing how God had worked his plan and brought them to the point where David was now their king. God worked through all the situation to establish the one that he wanted to be their king. So there's a contrast. And it's interesting how Samuel is a contrast to these men, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli. They're mature men. They are in leadership, and here is little Samuel, just a young, young lad. He's, he, they're mature. He's young. They're indifferent to God. Samuel is commended for being sensitive to the Lord. They are condemned as they lost their honor before God and man, and Samuel is commended as he grew in favor with God and man. More six times. Um, the writer of 1 Samuel keeps coming back to Samuel and commending him. He, uh, verse 26 of chapter 2. And the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. It reminds us of Jesus was also commended that way, right? He keeps trying to tell the story of Eli and Eli's sons, but he keeps having to go back and say, and Samuel. Samuel, he was the good one. So there's definite contrast that is trying to be taught here. And ultimately... God wants to show that he is in control and that he is working his plan. And don't be like the judges. Don't be, be like Samuel. Don't be like Eli and his family. Be like Samuel. Don't be like Saul. Be like David. That's, um, today, we're going to look at three things about God that will help align our perspective about to bring things when we see chaos around us, when we start to doubt what God is doing or whether God is even in control. We're going to see three things that, about God that will show that he is supreme and we can trust his perfect plan. 
That word supreme, we were talking about Jesus having authority. That is, that's what we mean by that word supreme, that he's supreme. He is in authority, he has it, he can do whatever he likes. So we come to chapter 4, where our text is today. And we know now the context, God has it out for Eli and his sons. And that's what's going on. Let's, um, first of all, the, our first teaching point today is that God is supreme over man's schemes. God is supreme over man's schemes. So let's read um, from chapter 4, uh, reading beginning at verse 1. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Where's God? What's God doing? What's going on here? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So here we have the situation. We know what's going on, what God's plan is, what's going on here. And Israel goes into battle with the Philistines again. This is their age-old enemy. And 4,000 of them die. I mean, this is, that's a significant loss. I mean, obviously. But uh, probably a small portion of their overall army. And they don't know what to do about this. They've, they're not supposed to lose, right? God is... On their side, and as a suggestion, they start discussing how are we going to defeat these guys, and they think about the Ark of the Covenant, and they drag it off to, up to the front lines, and they think, well, if we can put God here in the middle, then of course we're going to win. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, we all probably know. You've all seen, you know, Indiana Jones. We know that the Ark of the Covenant is the place where God would come and meet with them. It wasn't God. It was just a box, a very decorative box with cherubim on top. Very beautiful box, but just a box. It was a place where God would come and meet with them. Just a box. A nice box, but not God. But the the mentality of the people, you know, the the leadership they had, things had gone askew in their minds. And now they had started to treat God like all the other pagan gods and how they treated them. And they all had these idols and things that they would, they would also use them as good luck charms and things to, to win their battles. And so they start thinking, well, we can take God and bring him here, then we'll win. You know, God is supreme over man's schemes. At first, it seems that maybe it, they were thinking rightly, right? Because they want God to be part of it. Um, but actually they had replaced God with an image, this ark. Most translations say, let us bring the ark that it might save us from the power of our enemies. 
Some translations, maybe the one you're looking at, is, does say, he will save us. And um, I think probably from the context, we see that that's probably not the best translation. It's a pronoun. But um, we see that Israel had started to treat God like all of the pagans around them, dragging God around, using him like a good luck charm. Here's our, as we think about God is supreme over man's schemes, here's a, a teaching point for us, that God is not a good luck charm. You know, we, we would never say that we treat God like that, right? We don't, it's not like a rabbit foot in your pocket. We, we would never say that, we would never articulate it that way. But I wonder, as we start to think about it, do we start treating God like that? God is supreme over man's schemes. You know, we, we, things maybe aren't going our way. Well, I, I need to, um, you know, what's the trump card that I can pull out at this point? I'll use the God card, right? I'm a Christian. Jesus loves me. I have this plan and it's not working out for me. So, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I got all, I'll just, I'll just bring God into it somehow. I'll, you know, pray God, you know, Lord, I really want this. Just bless me and make this happen for me, right? Um, you know, I'm a Christian. God loves me. He does, he wants good things for me, right? And we can get lulled into that same thinking. Israel had um, said if we put God's box in the middle of us, he would never allow himself, he would never allow himself to be taken into captivity. So we'll be okay, right? Silly Israelites. Or is it silly us? Do we treat God like a good luck charm? I'm glad I'm a Christian because um, I know that things are going to work out my way because I'm on God's side, right? And that means he's on my side, and everything is just going to work out. Do we expect blessings because we claim to be Christians? Do we expect to have a charmed life? Well, the Bible puts that into perspective quickly, doesn't it? If you want to follow Christ, you will see persecution. Um, God's plan is not your plan. Um, God is working out his plan, not necessarily yours and i think the danger that we can get into and these certain guys certainly had is we start thinking that god is serving me and we are actually serving him and that's what had gone wrong here they were seeing god as this thing that was going to marvelously bring about their plan where God actually, we know, right, what he's actually wanting to do is to bring judgment on their leaders. And thus, things were not going well. God is not a good luck charm. He is actually sovereign. He's sovereign. He is working his plan, not ours. Now, Israel was oblivious, maybe, to what God was doing. They were fighting the Philistines. They're, this is where they thought God wanted them to go and to fight this battle, and they were going to attack the Philistines and bring great victory to themselves. But actually, God was actually out to defeat them. And in fact, all this manipulating and this maneuvering that they were doing, God actually worked through all of that to bring these two men, Hophni and Phinehas, right to the front line, right 
in harm's way exactly where he wanted them. They didn't know what God was doing, and therefore they were actually fighting against God. And we need, as we think about ourselves, we need to understand what God is doing and be careful that we are not using God to accomplish our plans, but that we are submitting ourselves to what he's doing and getting involved in that and being used by him in the direction that he is actually going. And sometimes we can build up all these great ideas and great plans of this is all what I want the Lord to do for me. And actually, the Lord's what is the Lord's plan for you? And we need to align ourselves with that. I can get into praying and, you know... I can get into that. I, I see myself here. Uh, uh, maybe you're seeing yourself here. That you know, I, I want this to work out. And um, James four three says, "You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions." Sometimes we're so caught up in what we were trying to do that we're out of tune with what God is doing. You listen to a toddler praying, you know. They, they they want to talk to God, but they're so selfish, right? They're just so focused. They can take my stuffy to heaven with me when I die. You know, like so. I mean, we it's cute, okay? It's really cute, and we, um, you know, there's we we celebrate that because right, they're talking to God. But the problem is, some of us have grown up, and we're still. You know, it's totally out to out of out to lunch, maybe about what God is doing and what He wants from us, and we're still back there. Lord, make my plans work out. I really want this, and You love me, so give it to me. We had, I I thought it was really good um, motives and good um, desires. We we were trying to plant a church in the Philippines among a, a remote people group. And as we'll explain later, things have not been going particularly well for us there. You know, there, it's a, a great desire, but I don't know really what God is doing. I know he's teaching me a lot through this. I know, you know, I have to keep aligning myself because if I start to get looking at the situation and the, and the you know, failures, my expectations, I have raised my expectations and then God is doing something different, I have to be very careful that I am aligned with what he's doing. Because when we stop and we start to think about where we're at, you know, we can raise these expectations of what we think God's supposed to do for us. And then we, when that doesn't materialize, where do we go? Oh, doubt, right? Oh, maybe God's not, maybe, maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe the Bible's not, all of a sudden, you know, you get sucked down the hill uh, into this despair because your eyes are on your situation or your false expectations. But, you know, we need to keep aligning, constantly realigning with what God wants us to do and watch for what he's doing. What does God really care about? What should we pray for? I had an argument on Facebook. You ever have one of those? It's really most productive thing you can ever do uh, with a guy about whether we should pray for the Blue Jays to win. Uh, I never won the argument. He was 
praying for them again last week when they lost. But that's beside the point. Um, you know, what, is, what, do we, what should we be praying for? Well, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, right? And we need to constantly go back to that. Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where we start, right? Warren Wearsby said, The purpose of prayer is to glorify God's name and to ask for help to accomplish his will on earth. This prayer begins with God's interests, not ours. God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. And then he quotes Robert Law. I don't know Robert Law. He quotes him. And I'm going to quote Warren Wearsby quoting Robert Law. And you can quote me quoting these guys too, okay? Prayer is a mighty instrument not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done in earth. Prayer is a mighty instrument not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done in earth. It might be that the Lord is more interested in your sanctification than your salary. He might be more interested in accomplishing something in you than through you. We don't necessarily know that. But we can trust him that he's supreme over our schemes. We say man's schemes, but he, he's supreme over our schemes as well. All the things that we're trying to manipulate, he might be, have different perspective. I love this song um, by Laura Story. You probably know it, Blessings. It says, we pray for blessings. We pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless, sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness. We doubt your love as if every promise from your word is not enough. And all the while, you hear each desperate plea and long that we'd have faith to believe. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're here? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? Can we trust God to do what he wants to do in us and not force our ideas and our expectations on him. Well, that's, that's a lesson that I learned from this passage. I mean, it is maybe jumped off of that. But you see that, you know, these guys have this one idea about God. God's doing something entirely different. Are we in line with that? Let's keep going. So God, can, God um, is not a good luck charm. He's sovereign. And... God cannot be manipulated. And we see that here they are. They're going to bring God here to win this battle and bringing this ark there. And when they get there, they find out that God is actually using all their maneuverings are actually God working to bring the judgment on these two guys. They're come, you know, you can just imagine them, right? Oh, they're coming to get the ark. That's, that's our job. And they grab the ark and they haul it over to the front line. And they're just giddy, you know, right? This is our, you know, this is this is what we do. And God is 
you know, working all that to bring them right to the front line. You don't know what's going to happen, but um, they're, they're going to die. He cannot be manipulated. Do we live like God is sovereign? Are we expecting God to serve us or are we serving him? He's way bigger than our plans. He's doing something and working things out that sometimes we cannot see. A little balance time, okay? So when you teach one passage, um, sometimes you can... You, you, the first rule of hermeneutics or studying the Bible is to let other scriptures interpret other this scripture, right? So just in case you're wondering, is it bad to pray for you know, the nice weather tomorrow or whatever... I'm, I'm okay with that, okay? Um, to balance that all. Because we know in 1 Samuel 2, um, Hannah, Hannah is also a woman who has a very personal need, right? And she has no children. Her co-wife, real problem with co-wives in this, lots of stories, but her co-wife is irritating and bugging and ridiculing her because she has no children. And Hannah prays, for a child, for her honor, and to, you know, to raise her, yeah, her honor in society. And God listens to that, okay? Does God, is God compassionate? Does he care about your cares and concerns in your life? Absolutely. I just want to put all of that, though, because we're, we're, we, we know that and we hold on to that, but I also want us to lift our eyes up and to see that God might be doing something bigger, and it might not be answering the prayer the way that we thought God should. Because going back to the Lord's Prayer, he says, you know, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then only once do, does Jesus, as we're praying, as we get that perspective, then do we say, give us this day our daily bread. It, first of all, we have to understand that God is sovereign. God's will be done on earth. Then... Give us this day our daily bread. Just a little clarification there in case you think that God is um, malicious or doesn't care about what we, what, what we need or what we want. We, we know there's lots of verses that talk about that, that he's, um, he will provide all of our needs. The story is to give us balance. So we think, if we start thinking that God is some magic genie that we, need to, we can call on and grant us every, our every wish. He is the Lord, we are his servants. Another um, lesson uh, that, we're, that we could learn from this is that, first of all, God is supreme over man's schemes, but also that God's word will come true. If we were to read the rest of the story, um, we would see that the battle happens again. Let's actually, I'm going to read a couple more verses here. So from verse 5, As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with, smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel 
was defeated. Okay, so they okay, plot, great story, you know, they bring the ark in and then they lose again. It's not how, I don't know, if I was writing the Bible, this is where, you know, God wins. Obviously, he wants to win. No, he has a different plan. And he, they are defeated. And we keep reading, every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, well, died. Who, whose will was accomplished here? Whatever God says, it will come true. The passage that had attracted me to this um, passage to share about it was actually in chapter 5, and we're going to go over there now. Third, our third point. Um, so God is supreme over man's schemes. God's word will come true. And then thirdly, God is supreme over all principalities and powers. And if you want to call the world's philosophies today and those behind them principalities and powers, I think we'd be in line with that. So let's go to chapter 5 and see what happens. The ark has been taken away, captured. And, of course, the Philistines think of a victory. A military victory is not just a military victory. It's their God has defeated Israel's God. That's how they see it. And so they take the ark and they take it back to their land. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. That's one of their cities. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So, here is an interesting thing, right? God allows his ark to be taken and they put it in the temple of Dagon, their god. And um, shock of all shocks, the tension of the story builds because God allows his ark to be taken. He could have won a victory that day, um, but he has a whole different plan. So they bring the ark into the temple of Dagon and they set it there, probably at the feet of this large um, idol. And it basically, it has been defeated. It's at Dagon's feet. And the priests come in the next day and here this huge idol has fallen. You know, it, It's a little bit humorous almost just to read this. And they came along and they stood it back up again. You know, it's... It, you know, you see the humor there, right? That there's nothing powerful about this thing. It actually has to be stood up by humans. There's no power in it. You're like, oh, that never happened before. Coincidence, probably. The next day they come in and it's fallen again. And not only that, there's um, its head is severed. The hands have broken off. And that was no coincidence. That was something that they happened in a military defeat when 
you would defeat someone, they would count the hands of the per- all the people that were dead. And that was the way they get a, a count on the dead. This was a Yahweh, God, in the presence of Dagon, has not been defeated. He has actually won a victory. And that is a very symbolic thing. They would have understood that. And, you know, it's... Has God been defeated? Has Israel, um, Israel's defeat, does that mean God's defeat? No. God is still supreme. He's supreme over all principalities and powers. Let's keep reading in verse 6. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, um, commentaries think that these tumors were probably swelling. It might have even been the bubonic plague that God allowed to happen there. There's mention of rats later. Anyways, just to, that's one person's opinion about what's going on here. So he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And that's another other cities. And they brought the ark of the God of Israel around. And they had brought it around. The hand of the Lord was against that city with very great confusion. And he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, another city. And as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out and saying, they have brought the ark of God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. And they sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Okay, battle three, right? The first battle didn't go very well. Battle two was very bad, and here's battle three. No Israelites on the scene at all, right? God is working anyway, despite the Israelites. Does he still defeat the Philistines? Yeah, in a very miraculous way. Uh, amazing way, right? And so when we start to think that somehow God has lost the plot, that God is somehow not able to defeat these principalities and powers around us, does he need even us? Does he even need anyone? He is still supreme. He's supreme over man's schemes, and he's going to accomplish what he promised, and he is sovereign over even the principalities and the powers. The worldly philosophies of the day and those trying to push those, God is still sovereign over them. He still wins. He still wins. And he's promised, you know, we didn't, I've kind of glanced over the second point mostly, but, you know, he's made promises to us about the future and about in our own lives. And we can count on those for those who are, in Christ, we know those promises are sure because we can trust his word to be accomplished because he, he's sovereign, he can do it. And then the, 
for those who are against God, contrary to him, we, we see Eli and um, his sons, contrary to God, there's, that's a great distress because God's word will accomplish and he does it. Um, so here we are. It's, we have these Philistines running around in terror. You can just picture the, the chaos in their country, right? As they're trying to deal with this thing that they cannot control. Um, they've defeated Israel, but they certainly have not defeated God. And they keep moving it around, and they keep getting uh, affected by the, where God's presence is. And by the time the story is over, and over, everyone knows that he cannot be defeated. He is not limited by the capture of this symbol of his presence. Um, he certainly was not captured. They understood that God was greater than their gods. And he certainly doesn't need humans, even the Israelites, to defeat his enemies or to bring judgment. Everyone learned the lesson that God wanted to teach. If we know this from many other stories of the battles of the Israelites, that often, you think of Gideon, stripped them down to 300 people. Why? So that they would see that it was God who was the one who brings the victory. And it happens here in this case again. God wants to show them that he is the one who is sovereign. Here, by the end of the story, these Dagon-worshipping Philistines are sending guilt offerings to Yahweh and bringing glory to him. They soften their hearts to him. They said, don't harden our hearts like Pharaoh did. We need to soften our hearts. And they send the ark back. If, as we come to our own situation as we start to be mired in the darkness of the situation that we find ourselves in. We need to have a clear picture of Dagon lying on his face, broken in his own temple. God will win. God is sovereign. He will accomplish his plan. We must not get... um, discouraged and focused on our on how bleak it is, but to keep our eyes fixed on that he is the sovereign one. He's the supreme one. Whatever man may throw. God is in the heavens and he laughs, right? Um, Psalm 2. Another, if we read the next chapter, you will see a story where they sit the ark on a cart and cows bring the ark back to Israel. They don't want to be near it and, you know, God can use the cows to accomplish what he wants, right? Nothing is too hard for him. God is supreme over man's schemes. He's not a good luck charm. He's working his plan, not ours. He cannot be manipulated. God's word will come true. And he is supreme over all principalities and powers. We need to look up. We need to keep our eyes focused on who God says he is. Let us not be discouraged with how we find ourselves, where doubt and and despair come, but look up and see the hope. And in the person of God's character who is completely in control, no matter what perspective we might have. Let's just um, close our time in prayer.
Lord, we, we thank you that you are bigger than us. Forgive us for thinking that perhaps you are one of us or thinking that somehow you are just a, uh, someone we can manipulate to accomplish what we want. Lord, you are, you are working and out your scheme that is, uh, your plan that is so much greater than us. Help us to see and see where we fit into that, that we would um, serve you and to, and to be um, on your side to work and to um, see what you would have us to do, that we would trust in you, that you are supreme, that you are sovereign, and that you are working out that wonderful plan that we can be part of. Thank you for your love to us. We thank you for Christ. We see that plan worked out so perfectly. Um, how man's schemes were, would, would have um, desired to see Jesus destroyed, but we saw on the third day how the grave opened up and your perfect plan was being worked out for all of humanity to come to a right relationship with you and through victory over death there. And so we thank you for him. We thank you for your working your plan, that we, um, your word that keeps our eyes fixed on you. So we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.